Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarang country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week, we've got loads of news. And then we'll hear from Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall about the workplace fatality that occurred in Bridgewater last week. But first, some union news. An update on what's happening for workers at Cole Smeaton Grange Warehouse. Last week, United Workers Union members voted for the sixth time to reject Cole's redundancy offer. Solidarity.net.au reported that the result was narrow, just 167 to 163 votes, but it indicates the sheer determination of the majority of workers not to give in to Cole's standover tactics. Cole's offer of four weeks' pay for each year worked, capped at 80 weeks' pay for forced redundancies, was first rejected in October last year. But Coles is desperate to prevent Smeaton Grange setting a new benchmark for job security and redundancy, with as many as 3,000 other Coles workers facing the axe as Coles rolls out its automation plans across the industry. The stunning vote came after the UWU held a secret ballot online on Friday, 22nd of January, that returned a count of 156 to 96 in favour. But many workers did not get the text message allowing them to vote. In any case, it is now very clear that the majority of Smeaton Grange workers are committed to their original demands, maximum redeployment, training and a cap of 104 weeks pay for forced redundancy. They also want voluntary redundancy to be available right through until Smeaton Grange closes so that workers can take advantage of any alternative job offers before the shed closes. Workers are also angry at Cole's threats to take disciplinary action against workers involved in protests during the lockout. The actions of the concerned workers of Smeaton Grange Group in calling for a no vote was crucial to winning majority support in both the non-union ballot and the latest vote to reject Cole's EBA. Stay up to date on social media about how you can stand in solidarity this Friday in a day of action against Coles. Hungry Panda Riders held a protest on Monday over unsustainable pay cuts imposed without consultation, the sacking of a rider for raising concerns about the pay cut, and the company's attempt to gag the protest by threatening to stop implementation of a new insurance policy. Michael Kane, National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union, who is representing the workers, says Hungry Panda is threatening its workers like modern-day slaves, slashing pay at a whim and sacking workers for raising legitimate concerns. Hungry Panda workers are struggling to make ends meet and dying on the job, and the company's response so far has been to sack workers who put their hands up, evade calls to attend a parliamentary inquest, and attempt to gag workers protesting such reprehensible behaviour. It's time for federal and state governments to get their heads out of the sand. This is not some shiny new economy. It's old-fashioned exploitation via an app and working systems designed to push workers outside laws which are hopelessly out of date. The protest occurred on the same day the New South Wales government 
Task Force handed down guidelines for food delivery companies outlining work health and safety obligations following an investigation into four food delivery riders killed in two months in Sydney last year. The TWU supports government attention on the safety crisis in food delivery, but warns that without government intervention, there is nothing to stop companies like Uber crafting their business models around circumventing the law. Light touch guidelines are unlikely to pose a threat to companies who have expertly honed their ability to evade 100-year-old workplace laws. When federal court judges savaged Uber's business model, the company adjusted its contracts with workers to attempt to distance itself further from legal responsibilities. Uber will keep playing this game until direct government intervention puts a stop to it. We need a tribunal standing guard to examine involving work arrangements and ensure safe minimum standards for all workers, said Kane. Last week, Hungry Panda riders received a message stating that their pay had changed, followed by a significant drop in their wages. Food delivery rider James Young was sacked on Tuesday following a strike he held in Burwood over the slashed pay. On Friday, a Hungry Panda representative told the TWU, We intend to proceed with arranging and putting in place the group insurance policy subject to your confirmation that no further action will be taken. In November, weeks after Hungry Panda rider Xiaojun Chen was killed and his family left with no income and no compensation. Hungry Panda failed to show up for its slot at a New South Wales government inquiry into the gig economy. The company later blamed their no-show on riders turning up to their offices with questions. Michael Kane says Hungry Panda's behaviour over the last week proves that government intervention must come with enforceable minimum standards that address the inextricable link between low pay, unrealistic time pressures and associated safety risks. James Young is a hard-working father just trying to provide for his four kids. Last week, his pay plummeted with no warning, no consultation and no chance to negotiate. Hungry Panda is hell-bent on pushing ahead with the pay cut, which would have seen James lose around $500 a week. When James exercised what little power he had and withdrew his labour in protest, Hungry Panda responded harshly and unjustly, opting to remove his income altogether. Hungry Panda's pay cut came days after Uber sent its riders new terms and conditions, including revoking pay if a customer complains without giving riders right of reply. Riders from Uber Eats and other companies joined the protest today in support of Hungry Panda riders. In international news, The Guardian has reported that thousands of farmers blockaded main roads across India for several hours on Saturday to press their demand for the repeal of new agricultural laws that have led to months of major protests. The protesters used tractors, lorries and boulders to blockade the roads. They carried banners and flags denouncing the laws, which they say will leave them poorer and at the mercy of corporations. We will keep fighting till our last breath, said Jahajan Singh, an 80-year-old farmer at a protest site in Kazipur. The country's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, should know that either he will remain or we will, he said. The authorities deployed thousands of security forces, mainly outside Delhi, where farmers have camped at three main sites for more than two months. The farmers have said they would not leave until the government repeals the law. Saturday's blockade began at midday and lasted for three hours. No violence was immediately reported. Several rounds of talks between the farmers and the government have failed to produce any breakthroughs. The government has said the laws are necessary to modernise Indian agriculture. The Agriculture Minister Narendra Singh Tomar defended the laws in Parliament on Friday, dampening hopes of a quick settlement and making no offer to resume talks with the farmers. <laughs> 
You're listening to Stick Together, worker stories and union news, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. The ABC reported that dozens of protesters have gathered in Adelaide's Chinatown district in the past week, urging better wage protections for vulnerable workers, especially migrants and international students. The rally came after an alleged assault on a worker at Chinatown business, Fun Tea, last week, which has sparked discussion about alleged wage theft among the international student community. Footage of the incident, which went viral on social media, shows a verbal dispute between a man and a young woman who makes claims about wage theft. The man can be heard denying the claims. The video then shows another man stepping in and striking the woman in the face before kicking her to the ground. Police are investigating the alleged assault, which has also prompted discussion about wage theft. That man, a 39-year-old from Glen Osmond, has since been arrested and charged with assault. Protesters returned to Chinatown, carrying placards with slogans including Fair Go and Modern Slavery. Organisers of the rally urged a broader community debate on systemic underpayment, saying they had received thousands of reports from migrant workers receiving less than the minimum wage. We need to try very hard to encourage them to really stand up to speak out about their victim experience and also encourage them to take any actions, said Selen Capsis, who founded workers' support group Fair Go SA. Especially in Chinatown, many employees are paid as low as $10 per hour. That is almost 50% less than the legal pay. Ms Capsis said many vulnerable victims were afraid of being blacklisted or blackmailed by unscrupulous employers. They could spread rumours against these wage theft victims, she said. We need better laws. SafeWork South Australia is investigating the incident and the matter has been referred to the Fair Work Ombudsman. This week, a Senate inquiry into the Industrial Relations Omnibus Bill will hear from Australian workers who have sacrificed so much during the pandemic and are going to be deeply affected by the Morrison government's proposed changes to industrial relations legislation. The ACTU's submission to the Senate inquiry states that the changes will not only harm workers but will hurt Australia's post-pandemic economic recovery. Across three hearings in Townsville, Adelaide and Canberra, union members will provide their lived experience as evidence of the harmful impacts this bill will have on their lives. The ACTU's main concerns with the omnibus bill include, but are not limited to, making it easier for employers to casualise jobs that would have otherwise been permanent, making bargaining for better pay and conditions more difficult than it already is, allowing wage cuts, taking rights off blue-collar workers on big projects, and weakening wage theft punishments in jurisdictions where it was already deemed a criminal act. The bill will also allow the Fair Work Commission to approve agreements that do not pass the better-off overall test, meaning workers could be significantly worse off, even though exemptions for exceptional circumstances already exist for businesses that are struggling to recover from the pandemic-related recession. Sally McManus, ACTU Secretary, said, As all working people know, Bargaining with employers for better paying conditions is already difficult enough. 
Australian workers are suffering from years of wage stagnation and that is not the way to lead this country to economic recovery. If this bill can't be fixed, it needs to be dumped. The Australian government should strengthen legislation to suspend the imports of goods made from forced labour, Human Rights Watch said this week in a submission to Australia's Senate Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Legislation Committee. Australia needs to adopt urgent measures to address China's alleged use of forced labour of Uyghur and other Muslim minorities in the Xinjiang region. There are credible complaints of forced labour of Uyghur and other Muslim minorities from Xinjiang, supported by accounts from former detainees, satellite imagery and leaked Chinese government documents, said Elaine Pearson, Australia Director at Human Rights Watch. Australia should join other countries to authorise the suspension of imported goods made with forced labour from Xinjiang and elsewhere. The Australian government should designate Xinjiang, a region where forced labour risks are high, and introduce a presumption of forced labour in cases of imports of finished goods from Xinjiang or imports of goods made with inputs from Xinjiang, Human Rights Watch said. Human Rights Watch, a member of the Coalition to End Forced Labour in the Uyghur region, also urged the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to convene discussions with Australian businesses and non-governmental organisations to raise awareness about the risks of doing business in Xinjiang. Human Rights Watch also said that Australia should overhaul the Modern Slavery Act of 2018, supplementing or significantly amending it to introduce a broad sweep of measures similar to proposals that Human Rights Watch and other rights groups are advocating in the European Union. Australia currently does not make it mandatory for businesses operating in the country to undertake human rights and environmental due diligence in their own operations and their global value chains. A Sydney Morning Herald report said workers at risk of developing an incurable progressive and fatal lung disease need greater protections across a range of workplaces, according to the union movement, warning proposed new health and safety measures won't help thousands of Australians. The Australian Workers' Union is leading a push for tougher national regulations to protect all workers exposed to deadly silica dust, with fears Australia could be hit with a tsunami of deaths in the coming decades. Silicosis is caused by breathing in tiny bits of silica, which scar the lungs and makes it increasingly difficult to breathe. The dust is generated in workplace mechanical processes such as crushing, cutting, drilling, grinding, sawing or polishing natural stone or man-made products that contain silica. Last year, more than 350 people were diagnosed with the disease, but health authorities fear with thousands of workers exposed over the past decade, many more could develop the illness. Unlike asbestos, which can take decades to develop, silicosis hits young and healthy workers in their 30s and 40s. It can often be fatal. Some sufferers may eventually need a lung transplant. AWU National Secretary Daniel Walton said preliminary reforms recommended by the National Dust Disease Task Force would only provide extra protection for stonemasons, leaving the construction industry, miners and quarry workers and tunnellers out in the cold. Ahead of the last federal election, the government promised to spend $5 million to establish a dedicated task force, set up a national dust disease register and commission research into the nature, prevention and treatment of occupational lung diseases. The task force's interim advice in January last year identified early steps governments could take to address the issues identified. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the final report was later extended until June 30. 
Then Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy said an extension would allow the task force to further consult with stakeholders to inform the development of a national strategy and address occupational dust disease issues. Mr Walton said it was critical a final report endorsed long overdue reforms to workplace health and safety regulations. We are talking about people who construct our roads, miners, demolition and quarry workers and even people that make glass, metal or ceramics, he said. This is scandalous and it also makes no sense. If we can make workplaces safer for one group of workers, why not make it safer for everyone? Joanna McNeil, a 34-year-old mother of two, was diagnosed with silicosis last year after returning from maternity leave. Ms McNeil worked in an administration role at a quarry and was exposed to dust with her office close to the main blast site. It's the unknown which is so terrifying, Ms McNeil said. At the moment I'm feeling healthy, but I don't know if that will be the case in one year, let alone five or ten years, and as a mum of two young daughters that terrifies me. The campaign will call for the stronger enforcement of regulations and tough penalties for breaches of minimum benchmarks, a comprehensive health monitoring program and a compensation fund. Mr Walton said the federal government must not tinker around the edges or compromise the health and safety of Australian workers. It is an outrage that a country like Mexico has stricter laws in relation to workplace silica dust exposure than Australia, he said. It took two decades to make James Hardy pay for what they did and for the truth to come out about asbestos. It would be a disgrace if we allowed history to repeat itself, he said. In 2004, building materials manufacturer James Hardy signed a record compensation deal for tens of thousands of Australian asbestos victims suffering from the fatal disease mesothelioma and other asbestos-related lung cancers. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. Unfortunately, Victoria's first workplace death for 2021 occurred in Bridgewater last week. Emergency crews were called to Hay Australia's Bridgewater facility on Monday to reports of an injured male. Bendigo man Harley Muir died at the scene with WorkSafe Victoria saying it appeared the 29-year-old was fatally injured when he got caught in machinery about 12.30pm on Monday. I spoke with Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall about the incident. No, actually, I came across it by chance through the Bendigo Advertiser, a local paper here. Um, went straight upstairs to talk with Luke Martin, who's the Secretary of Bendigo Trades Hall Council, if he knew anything about it, didn't know either. Uh, we didn't have to receive any alert from uh, WorkSafe whatsoever. So we, uh, we both went for a drive out there uh, to the site. By the time we got there, the police were already there. I believe WorkSafe, I think everyone was called into a meeting and they were shutting the plant down altogether. Uh, we couldn't do much that day. The day we just had to let that be. Um, next day, obviously, uh, during the course of the night or uh, the next morning, Luke sent me a message showed me a message, uh, it was a screenshot by the partner of the person who was killed, of the worker that was killed. Uh, she uh, obviously contacted the company to find out what was going on. They said a supervisor was going to be in touch with it, did, never did. And then she ran out more through the Bendigo advertiser. So the Bendigo advertiser pretty much let it out before she knew any more information. Uh, there was a memo put out, by, I mean, a email put out by the CEO 
Um, obviously, uh, talking about respective counselling and support for workers. So local management didn't have, have anything to say on that at all. So the base of the communications between the company and the family were pretty abysmal at the same time. Uh, we did get in touch with WorkSafe the, on the Tuesday. I had uh, the safety officer, one of our safety officers up here with me. We went out to site, have a look, but we really couldn't do much because there was hardly anyone around. Um, at the time, the plant was all locked up. Now uh, we got we were in touch with WorkSafe. Finally, uh, the investigative officer uh, contacted us. Uh, he basically just gave us that well, look. Couldn't reveal too much information at the time. It was still under investigation. That was a WorkSafe matter. Uh, the but following on from the uh, on Wednesday, there was a message came through on the website that a worker was entangled in machinery, and obviously mm. that's when he died. Uh, that was even. He does have an interview. The investigative officer officer gave me a call today. He's got an interview with the employees next week on Tuesday afternoon. He's given them my number just so I can be their support, but also have to talk with them as well um, yeah. just to find out a lot more. I also have a member that does work there that's coming in next week. Uh, Wednesday he'll give me. He wasn't there at that day. He was off. He was off shift, but. He said there's been a lot of a uh, lot of uh, very a uh, lot of ongoing safety and safety issues happening up there as well. So I'll be finding a lot more information. It's very hard when something's under investigation, uh, limited, and there's hardly anyone's coming forward talking what what's happening, trying to trying to narrow it down. But that's where where it's at at the moment. Do you think that other workers are scared of yes, speaking? Yeah. Uh, there will be that as well. Um, I think because there's a lot of fear, um, a lot of intimidation out on that site, standing over. I um, just I won't remember uh, mention the names, uh, no, no. respective and that. But it's a very they're very hostile towards unions. Uh, some months back, I was out there with another organizer. We're trying to uh, see the workers, and they tried stopping us. Like basically, we put the right of entries in. They tried hindering us on that. Uh, but basically, the issues was I don't know if you I won't. Well, basically, uh, they uh, basically said I'll put it very nicely. I won't put the actual expletives what they said to us, but they uh, made it absolutely clear they do not like unions whatsoever, and they thought they were a pack of. I'll leave it at that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So. So that was on the same site where this stuff has occurred. What What about the industrial manslaughter laws like in Victoria now? Do you think it could be applied in this kind of case? We think we could. We could. We actually want to see this case prosecuted right through. Um, the limited information we have so far, it sounds like there's been a lot of um, safety concerns on that site for many years now and nothing's been addressed. Mm. Um, we, we, I can't really just make accusations unless we've got no, a group no. of things, but Obviously, we've got some very big concerns out there as well, um, just the way that's operated. The problem is with a place like that, they've been out of the way. They work, they think they've been like a regional area, uh, especially the industry they're working like char feed and hay and all that. They think they can pretty much just run their own show exempt from any law and legislation. Now it's finally something's catching up to them. And this industrial manslaughter, if it does go through prosecutor, would be the first prosecution in Victoria under that legislation. So, yeah, it could become a test case, I guess.
a memorial at the back of the trades hall here. Um, uh, and cool. this year's it for International Memorial Day, which is the 28th of April. Obviously, you know, there's quite a history of workplace accidents here in Bendigo, stemming back from the 1800s, you know, from the mining industry, it was predominantly mining. But uh, obviously, it's uh, through the years, it's been other workplace deaths as well. Some of was well before my time, but this has obviously been a local one. So it affects the whole community as well. And also, to this place where, where, where it is in Bridgewater, a lot of workers live in little communities, for uh, the small little communities around the place, surrounding Bendigo. So it's not just the immediate family, it's their small community, but anyone they know, they're pretty, pretty much all local-based one way or the other. So they've, they're, they're, their roots are established here. They've known each, uh, known each other for pretty much ever since, you know, they've been in school, they've grown up here. Uh, so, yeah, you can see the ramifications, the effects. It's, it's quite broader than just being within the immediate workplace as well, or just the immediate family. Yeah. And this is the first workplace death this year compared to like 11 at this same time last year. Our workplace is getting safer. You, you think we've come a long way since the last, over the last 50 years, for example. Um, obviously, there have been um, some improvements both within technology and, uh, and, uh, and processes and procedures, but it sounds like, look, while the drive for profit is always here under the system we live under, safety will always take a second place. When, uh, when companies go on, that we, they cherish worker safety and safety is paramount, but they understand at the end of the day, they have to make a profit, and that means shortcutting um, a worker's safety and save yet in order to maximise the profit. And there's a lot of companies out there that just think they could just uh, bypass safety uh, and take shortcuts and for order to get the product done or get the job done. And we find it, but it's not just going predominantly in construction. We find it with mining, manufacturing. Well, I mean, we had it. We did have a death here in Bendigo last year. They were at the Ordnance Factory at Tullis. There, uh, that comes under a federal legislation. Besides the point. That there was numerous complaints about that particular job um, and uh, that particular uh, frame that was uh, that killed that work at the end of the day. For many years, nothing was enacted on, and, and it's, it's unfortunate until it takes a workplace tragedy like this, uh, a workplace death, and something's trying to be enacted. But look, we could keep addressing to it. Um, I mean, yes. We've we've come a long way since the mid 1800s um, when uh, that, but I mean at the end of the day too, it, it's still unfortunate. We've still got deaths on, on at the job happening every year. How many? It can be varied at the times, but it's just still not good enough. You can donate to support the family on GoFundMe. Just search Harley Muir at GoFundMe.com. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Dave Fox for talking to us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 0394198377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, Whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.